Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we are talking with Donnie Walton, whose debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, has already been one of the most talked about books of 2021. In fact, it was named one of the most anticipated books of the year by the likes of Essence, Vogue, O Magazine, Lit Hub, and so many more. Donnie has had an interesting path to fiction writing, which we talk about in the interview. Before diving into fiction full force, Donnie had a successful career in journalism. She was an executive level editor for many publications, including Essence, Life, and Entertainment Weekly. But fiction was calling to her, as we'll discuss later, and I'm personally so glad it did. I had such a great time talking with Donnie. Not only do I have a small world personal connection with her, but it felt like we could have talked about music forever. And this book that she's written is truly something special. It really brought up some memories as a former performer myself, and I absolutely loved it, as I loved our conversation. So without further delay, let's get into it. Bonnie, welcome to It's Lit. Maisha, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. <laughs> this is like really dope. Um, and you know, we record these conversations via Zoom and I have to tell you like, one of the reasons I was so excited, there were many, but so many of the authors that we have interviewed lately on their bookshelves, behind them, or what I would keep seeing the final revival of Opal and Nev. And I just knew this was a book that I had to read. I was like, yo, so all, like, this is like some weird, like, subliminal recommended reading situation, you know? <laughs> it's always a good sign. It's always a good sign when other authors are displaying your work and it really shows that you, you captured something special. But before we get into Opal and Nev, we have our own little ritual here at Islet. You might already be aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, this is a podcast about Black writers, Black books, journalists, et cetera, et cetera. I know all of those things resonate with you. So we like to begin each episode asking our guests to name at least one book or piece of writing that was somehow groundbreaking or mind-blowing for them. What was that piece of written work for you? Yeah, so I'm going to give you two. Please do. The first one is going to be Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which was the first book in a Black literary tradition that I was assigned to read in school, actually, in seventh grade. And I'm from North Florida, and so the book resonated for me in that way. But I loved so much about Janie and the mm -hmm. characterization of Janie and related very much to Janie in some ways. Those moments where she's dreaming underneath the pear tree, you know, mm -hmm. and sort of a sense of individuality and loneliness at times. I very much related to that. But also in Hurston's prose, the way that she switches between, you know, a more formal narrative style and then the dialogue of the community and the Black folks that I know so well, you know, um, that sounded like my family and the warmth of that language and the kind of code switching that she's doing there in, in those two different styles, you know, was really revelatory for me. So I would say it's that one. And then also Alice Walker's The Color Purple in the sense of its style and its form. The fact that you could write a whole novel in letters was something that I was so 
was like, wow, like you could do that. You could express everything that you need to in a story and do it with this sort of these parameters around it. And yet within those parameters, there's so much intimacy and it's like reading confessions. And there was something about that style that I just loved. And it felt so experimental. Well, that that's fitting. <laughs> that's really fitting. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, what you've done here with your first novel is this, it's a truly unique piece of fiction in its own right, you know, in terms of how you've approached it and, you know, both in scope and in form, right? Because you are taking us through eras and musical genres and, and you're doing it in the form of a music biography or, or, or a rock doc, you know, this is like, you know, we're reading Rolling Stone, you know, from cover <laughs> to cover. And it's like, you know, um, and I guess it's wonderful to hear you, uh, that these are two of your influences, which I, you know, I agree with you. I think, uh, both those books are foundational. I think they're foundational from a writing perspective. And also I think from a black womanhood perspective. Yes. Um, you know, the sensuality of these women, the wholeness of these women the truth of these women, being able to speak truth to trauma, like all the all of those aspects. And those are things that you do here as well, which I um, thank you for. Oh, <laughs> so I think it's really important. But I, I have to know, just right off the bat, you know, just we can go straight to craft here. Like, how did you even begin to form a vision for this project? This is really ridiculously ambitious, but super successful project. Like, how conceptually did you come up with this? Well, before I switched to fiction, I was a journalist for many years, was an editor at Essence, and before that was at Entertainment Weekly for six years. And I've always been a pop culture junkie, love film, love TV, and love music, especially in the ways that we used to love music. I don't like, do you remember what an experience it was on album release day and you would go and pick up the record and you would take it home and put the Absolutely. CD in and hold the liner notes and just read all the lyrics with the music and all of it was just burned onto your soul. And I, I miss that, you know, I, I miss that feeling. And, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to write about music was to stick myself back and, and feeling like that and to remember what that was like and calling on my journalism skills at Entertainment Weekly. Um, we used to use the oral history form all the time to talk about iconic films and TV shows and how they came to be. And I just love the way that voices would play with each other and the ways that memories would compare and contrast and how the reader is kind of trying to find the truth between everybody's different versions of it. So I like that idea. And then also the character of Opal is just a character that I really badly wanted to exist in the world. You know, when I was a teenager, I was very much into, you know, a lot of stuff that my parents loved and even my grandparents were huge music fans in terms of like the jazz vocalists and all of mm -hmm. that. But I also mm -hmm. loved alternative music and indie rock and some punk. And it was difficult for me to like that. It felt taboo in a sense because I didn't really often see myself reflected in those bands. And so I wanted to create a character. You know, I always say this, that I would have loved to pin up to my bedroom wall very proudly, you know, someone who was like a rock star and 
messy and cool and funny and stylish, but also very proudly Black. And able to hold all those things together at once in a way that I honestly didn't learn how to do until I went to FAMU. So I always feel like I had a character like Opal kind of simmering inside, you know? And in 2013, she just started, she started talking to me. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about a character uh, simmering inside of you. And I don't think it's any secret to our listeners or any of our regular listeners that I was a full-time singer-songwriter before, like in my pre-journalism life. And, you know, when you talk about that character <laughs> that simmers inside you, I, think that I relate to that so deeply from a performance aspect, right? Yes. You know, uh, Beyonce's alluded to this. Remember the whole Sasha Fierce phase, yes. you know, like all those kind of things, right? And so I was really struck by some of the nuances and, and details that you teased out about what that life is like that really rang very true to me. Mm. Um, and I suppose that is from possibly you interviewing so many musicians over the years, but you seem to glean a really intimate context about some of the more difficult aspects of that life, mm. <laughs> I guess I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this exhaustively and maybe you don't have an answer for it, but, and I have my own ideas, but what were some of the real life inspirations behind Opal and Nev? Oh, wow. There were so many. So I'll talk with the first one, uh, about the first one, which was when I was first had the idea for the story. And it was really sparked when I was watching 20 Feet from Stardom, the documentary mm-hmm. about background singers. And I, about five minutes into that film, they show footage from Stop Making Sense, which is a Talking Heads concert tour. And seeing his David Burns background singers to the left of him and how amazing they were, how joyous, how carefree, how committed they were to the sound. I wanted to pull one of them to center stage. So they were the first, the very first spark for the idea. Um, but then I started thinking, you know, what would it have been like if Grace Jones and David Bowie right. <laughs> made music together in this era of New York? And I would use that pitch to friends and they would say, you mean they didn't? They didn't make music together right. because it seems like they, they might have done some collaborations and they actually did in some ways do some, some work together, but I won't get into that. But so that's kind of the image that I had in my mind was a Grace Jones. And then as I started to write into the character, there were other influences that were coming in. So. I will say there's some Nona Hendrix. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I'm so glad because I was like, I saw Nona. Please continue. I want to know. Miss Nona. Who she's... Yes. Yes. There is Betty Davis. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who is just incredible and uncompromising in her art and very provocative in mm-hmm. performance style. Mm-hmm. But there are also things like Eartha Kitt. You oh my know? God. Yes. I'm so, that was what I was waiting for. I was like, I, was, I kept seeing when, you know, you have these, these incredible, uh, these, some of your more intimate scenes, you know, like, cause this is not all taking place on stage. I wouldn't even say it's mostly taking place on stage, but some of your more, uh, intimate scenes, you know, you have these, uh, these scenes that take place in this garden in California yes. and like, mm-hmm. and there's that famous clip, right? That famous clip that I feel like I pull out every now and again just to remind myself of exactly the type of Black woman I want to be in the world where Eartha Kid is sitting <laughs> talking to some interviewer, some faceless interviewer, and 
she's talking about love and she says, compromise, compromise for what? <laughs> and she gives that like, you know, that full throated, almost like cackle of a laugh. And I, 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 that, that I could not shake it when I was reading this. <laughs> that is what I was thinking about when I was writing those scenes. I love it. I love it. Yes. That's, those are exactly, I mean, right down to, Thank you. I feel so much I better. Those it. were the four women I had in mind. And I was like, <laughs> is this just me? Because I feel like, I mean, you know, I mean, and, and also at different points in their lives, you know, like there's, there's definitely, because we don't talk a lot about the, uh, we talk a lot about aging male rock stars, right? But very, right. it's very, very rare that aging female rock stars get their due. I mean, we just had the Tina doc come out, mm. right, on, on HBO. Oh. And whew, that Ooh. was like, it it's was the both. Worst. <laughs> Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's like so much. Oh, it was, I did not expect it to be actually more traumatic than the fictionalized version, but it kind, it really kind of was, um, in a weird way. Um, because she's so beloved and to hear how much pain accompanied that. And, but it's so rare that we get to hear those stories. You know, it's like Grace Jones got hers, I think a few years ago. Um, what was it Bloodlight and Bammy? And Bammy, yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, and it was around the same time. And this is a vision that came very clear to me too, that you kind of evoked in the book, that she did Afropunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just remember mm-hmm. Grace Jones doing Afropunk oh, and, yeah. you know, taking the stage and like, you know, at 60 years old and like hula hooping topless or something. Topless, <laughs> naked with the, the body paint on. Exactly, exactly. Like still Grace, like still Grace. <laughs> You know, right. Um, and as somebody who, and I kid you not, I'm sitting in a room where I literally am looking at Grace from one side and looking at Eartha from the other, like in front of me on my wall, these two portraits. Oh, wow. You know, this hit me in a spot, right? <laughs> you know, it hit me in a spot as uh, a performer, hit me in a spot as a black woman. And, you know, it's really interesting because performance has been on my brain lately. I just read A Little Devil in America. Oh, I am. I, I ordered it. I am eagerly waiting for it to You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I'm happy to say, you know, we have a conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib as well. But um, it's, it, it is very different. It's a very different book from yours. I mean, obviously, it's not fiction, number one. But mm-hmm. it does something similarly. And, and equally effective uh, to what I feel like you're doing here and what I'd love for you to comment on, which is talking about, like concurrently discussing performance from the technical level, from the representational level, from the literal level, right? Like what we know to be performance and also the performance of Blackness mm-hmm. um, and the expectations surrounding that, both from without and from within the community. Is that something that you were aiming to do here? Yeah, I think I definitely, um, I think, and, and maybe, you know, you as a performer, I'm not a performer, but I greatly admire performers. And I don't know. I think writing is a type of performance. I do oh, actually. I, well, <laughs> yeah. <least> <laughs> it that, is. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I and think it lasts that- longer. <laughs> it takes a long time. Listen, this book took yes. forever. <laughs> and, and now it will sit in perpetuity. Right. <laughs> you have I think that um as a performer, of course, like we all want to express our creativity and our individuality and all of those things, but we're also hyper aware of what every move means and what every word uttered is communicating Mm -hmm. because we know that there aren't many of us and 
there are our people that we love very much watching and we are bringing all of that with us onto the page or onto the stage, right? And so, you know, one of the things that's been interesting in this, in this process is, um, a lot of people have compared or put my book in conversation with Daisy Jones and the Six, which is another book about, uh, and a brilliant book written in an oral history form fiction about a seventies rock and roll heroine. But people are saying, yes, the form is similar, but these books are very different. And the reason that I think that they are different is because Opal is a Black woman. And that changes everything. Everything. Literally everything. Literally everything. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yeah, the intersectionality that you tease out here again and again and again is admirable. It's also honest, right? Like I'm looking at this line that I I captioned here. You approach them with overwhelming respect and then you do what you need to be done. And then you must be humble enough to say that it was their brilliant idea Uh. all along, right? (laughs) Which I think, you know, is a line that could resonate with you if you were most marginalized people. (laughs) But... That particular intersection of race and gender, like that line, I felt like, well, if that isn't just the whole damn truth right there, Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always so many calculations going on Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. mind, not only in the ways in which we're approaching the art, but in how that art is making it to the world, which which is a whole different machine, you know? Like there's the music and then there's the music industry, which is a whole different experience an animal that has to be navigated. Right. And how they will package you and what they will and will not allow you to do and what boxes they will and will not allow you to fit in or check off. I mean, it is, it is a machine and it is one that a lot of us don't (laughs) survive to be perfectly honest. And that's so interesting. You know, when you brought up the Tina documentary, like Mm -hmm. that's the thing that resonated for me in, in that is that the triumph of Tina Turner is not only, you know, her personal triumph in having escaped that abuse, that horrendous violence of her marriage, but in triumphing, like, over the industry that was, like, telling Tina Turner, of all people, eh, I don't know, we think she's kind of washed up, you know. Right. Or we only want to hear you sing blues songs, or we only want to hear you sing R&B is what you get a lot now, or urban music, Right. And you have, in Opal, created someone who is bucking that same system, who's like, no, I'm a rock star. Right. Period. Like, that's, that's what I am. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? And that, that ability to self-define 
you know, I think, you know, this is a, you've, you've set this book in the 70s. Well, most of it in the 70s. But that ability to self-define is something that we so very much struggle for. And, you know, which kind of leads me to something else that's, that's more a, about your personal journey, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as we've known it, you were a journalist. But you made this pivot to fiction. And I always love these stories because I'm in my 40s. And so like, <laughs> you made this pivot to fiction at a point when, you know, I think, I think some, sometimes similar things happen in writing where, you know, if you're not like the next hot thing, you know, this happens in a lot of creative fields where it's like, oh, you're not the ingenue. You're not the, you know, like, how do we market this? How do we package this? How do we do this? But you went to Iowa Writers Workshop, which, yeah. you know, incredibly, incredibly prestigious. We've had a few, few graduates of that program here. And obviously they had that reputation for a reason. But just, again, I think, I think that's about the bravery to self-define as well. So how did that come to fruition for you? So the end of 2013, I had a bunch of changes in my personal life. Went through a divorce that came as a bit of a surprise. You know, it happened very quickly and was really kind of asking myself some very tough questions about how I wanted the rest of my life to be. And... You know, at the time I was an executive editor, I was working very hard in a business that was increasingly challenged and was pulling, in some senses, further and further away from the thing that got me into the business in the first place, you know? And so I had all this time on my hands, right? Like when I wasn't at work, I was at work, you know, a good 10 hours a day, but the other hours, I was kind of reconfiguring my life, you know, and um, that's when I started writing and leaning into fiction again. And it was this story that was compelling me to get up at five in the morning before I had to go to the office and and write these characters out and to see how they related to each other, to see where their stories were going. And I had a good friend of mine, actually, I had known him for many years, ta Coates, told me, you know you're a writer, right? And I said, oh, you know, I do it for myself, whatever. He was like, you, you should really get serious about this. You need to do this. And he wrote me a letter of recommendation to McDowell, which was the resident, the writing residency. Well, it's most interdisciplinary, but um, it was a residency that ended up changing my life. And I remember when I applied for it, I said, if I get this, I'm jumping. And that was the promise that I made to myself. And that was the scariest part of the journey. After that, applying to graduate schools, I applied to 11 across the country. I didn't care where I ended up. I just knew that I needed to follow this dream and do something for myself. You know, doing that application and leaving my my career Mm-hmm. You know, not having a job, like what? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, like, mm, a, I know. <laughs> a steady check. What? I know all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So once I made that decision, it was actually very empowering after that. And I was just like, well, let's just, let's just keep going then. Let's just see where this goes. And, um, I ended up being the oldest person in my class at Iowa. But that was actually, my age was such a gift and such a blessing because I was old enough to recognize how amazing it was 
that I had all this time and space. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, because I can't tell you how many times I wish I could just go back to college, right? Like we all like. Yeah, exactly. So I came in focused. I came in with a project that I knew that I wanted to complete a draft by the time I graduated. And I just had lived enough life to be confident in my ideas and what I was doing. And I have to give credit to Essence for that as well. I grew a lot professionally in my, my ability to communicate in my, just so many skills I got from Essence, but the confidence was really key. And so like, I took that, I took all those things that I learned in my journalism career and I applied them to this new thing of fiction writing. And so when I would go into workshop and I would bring in parts of the novel and people would say very helpful things, but then also things that I could just say, no, you're just not my reader. That's cool. Right. Like, you just don't get it. You, you just don't. don't. And, and that's fine, you know, but I knew very clearly what I wanted to write and who I wanted to write it for. And those two things were everything and remained everything on the publishing journey. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the publishing journey because I have to hit on something that we don't usually hit on when we have these conversations. So we usually, we are usually talking so much about craft and personal journey and, and plot and, you know, all the things we should be talking about on a <laughs> writer's podcast. But, um, and I, you know, I guess you kind of answered the question because I wanted to say, when did you know that you had something? And I say that because as we speak, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this incredible package that your publisher sent to me. This was a really special, I've never seen anything like this for a book. Um, and just for our listeners, because y'all ain't going to get this. But <laughs> <laughs> I wish you know, everyone could get it. I wish everyone could. It's very cool. They sent your package, they sent your book along with an actual vinyl album that has, you know, the typical, I mean, beautifully, I mean, like there's a whole, this this is like packaged like vinyl. I could put this with like, you know, my hundreds of albums that I have over here, you know, and it plays. I tried it. <laughs> now, what did you get is the question because everybody yes, gets I, something different. Everybody gets something different. So I got Al Hurt because, you know, I, I pulled out Shazam. Like, what is this? Um, I got Al Hurt, who is uh, a Louisiana, uh, was, I should say, a Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, like trumpeter. So the, the sound was very, I want to say like very sixties, very sixties, oh, a little swingy, a little gospely. Okay. Um, all instrumental. But yeah, so one side is this actual playable vinyl album. And the other side is this, you know, incredible synopsis of your book and, and bio of you and, and the graphics. But I found myself and, and then, you know, you got this very cool enamel pen, which I'm going to put on my jacket with all the other enamel pens. Cause I'm like, you know, apparently 12 <laughs> and like a Lisa Frank sticker in my mind. <laughs> yes, Lisa <But>. Frank. <laughs> But, but, you know, I do know enough to know that nobody gets packaging like this unless a publisher believes they have something. <laughs> so when did you know that you had something with this book? You know, it's hard to say because I really, I kept it to myself for so long mm -hmm. before I started really workshopping it. But I know, like, it was making me laugh. <laughs> it's hard to explain because like there are definitely like lighter moments of the book and there are heavier moments of the book, but there are also like some of my favorite things to write were the satirical moments in the book. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
There and by moments, satirical, you mean? Like sort of um, a little bit tweaking the way that media works, yeah. especially. Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like you were sending us up and I loved it a little bit. I was like, this is exactly how we are. We're exactly <laughs> a bit, like this. A little bit. As someone who was part of that and understands. Exactly. You, you're entitled to do that. You were... <laughs> I know how the sausage gets made, you know. That's right. right. Um, So I was just sort of, it was fun to me in a way Mm -hmm. that nothing else that I had tried writing fiction-wise felt fun, you know? And I think that's when I first knew that I really loved it, you know? And um, I think when I started sharing it at Iowa as well, um, and sharing it with my husband who, you know, we were dating at the time and my husband is a very tough critic. Like <laughs> he has opinions about everything, but he was like, this is really good. And I believed him, you know, I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe it will be okay. Maybe it's, you know, and I just, um, I added some additional layers when I was workshopping it in Iowa. Actually, the journalist character in the book didn't exist before. It was just a straight oral history. That's so interesting because I was going to ask, are you in this book? Uh, yeah. <laughs> are you in this book? It's okay if you are. You wouldn't be the first a little to just bit. somehow show up a little bit on the side. Yes, yes. I, I show mean, up I remember in we, we were talking to Alice Randall. Exactly. We were talking to Alice Randall and I... I, I was like, so this seems like it's you. <laughs> and, she's like, <laughs> and she's like, well, you know, kind of like, it's totally you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that personal stuff does kind of seep in, especially when I'm writing about Sunny listening to Opal and Nev's music for the first time and the reaction she has in her body when she's listening to it. Those moments um, felt very personal to the way that I feel like I used to experience listening to music. And obviously this character has a very personal relationship to this story. And I didn't want to spoil that for, for people who have not read the book yet, but it is a obviously pivotal <laughs> plot point here um, yeah. in terms of why this story exists, why this, why this whole, the, the catalytic event as it were. But I, I, again, I think, I think, I think everybody should read it for themselves because this, this is a very, very special and very easy to read book. It's very enjoyable to read. Thank you. Um, I had a lot of fun reading this book. I, I had a lot of, mm-hmm, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> I would, I say, I say a lot. If I get verbal with the book, like it's a good, you know, that's always good. Like, mm-hmm. or if I have to put it down and like, you know, walk away for a minute and, you know, like in this case, there were, there were moments I was a little triggered. I was like, Oh, <laughs> yes, that did happen. Um, but you had so much fun reading this book and I want to know, are you already at work at the next bit of fun? Oh. Uh. So I'm at the point where I'm kind of thinking about characters because that's mm-hmm. where the stories for me always start is with the people who populate them. So I'm thinking about, you know, a group of four characters and trying to figure out who they are and how their lives intersect. But I really love, you know, one thing I've learned about myself is that I love not just following one character, but sort right. of a group of them and over a span of time. I really enjoy kind of getting from one head to the to the next and seeing how those things weave together. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, it's it's really it's been honestly a little bit hard to focus in this phase of I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Still and it's it's interesting, you know, a lot of writers talk about this period when you're 
talking about your book that's finally been released to the world, it's a bit of a process to let it go. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a grieving process, uh, before you can like fully turn your attention to something new. But I am, these characters are starting to excite me a little bit and I'm starting to think about them while I'm doing other stuff around the house, which is always a good sign. That is um, a good sign. So that's where I mean, they're living with you, right? That's you right. Know? And that, that comment you just made about letting it go, I, I think that's why I would say I agree actually that writers are performers too. I think you guys deserve uh, yeah. that due. No, you are, because that is the same process as, as making an album. It's the same process That's as making true. a film. It's the same process. You know, you put yeah. so much of yourself into this thing in this in this moment, and then you have to release it. And then it's somebody else's, and it's and it's up to their interpretation. And Yeah. And there's so many stages of that releasing, right? There's when mm-hmm. you decide that the book is done. You know, there's that. And then there's the letting go that happens on your release day when people are getting it and having their commentary about it and all of that. And then there's turning your attention to, to what might be next. Well, I can't wait to see what comes next for you, but take your time because it's worth it. Thank you. Donnie Walton, thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. <laughs> this was delightful. This was a pleasure, Maisha. Thank you. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm currently reading right now is A Galley of Everyman, which is coming out this July. And this is an incredible kind of reverse migration story by M. Shelley Connor that starts in my hometown of Chicago and really traces us back through um, a history of a collection of amazing characters, um, all of whom are, are harboring really intimate secrets and they they mesh in, in really kind of gorgeous ways. She's done such a beautiful job with this and I'm really excited to talk to her about it. So look forward to that. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. And you know what to do. Keep it lit. <laughs>